Bio podcast. At Optimal Bio, we don't just balance your hormones, we balance your whole body. Our conversations range from nutrition to medicine with an emphasis on wellness tips to support your health journey. If you like what you hear, find us on the web at OptimalBio.com and follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Optimal Bio's Wellness Podcast. Today, we are honored to have Shannon Converse, one of our providers in our new location in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, join us today. Welcome, Shannon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. As we always do with most of our guests, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started. I was born and raised in Colorado, spent most of my life there, um, but I did go to grad school in Northern California. So moving here um, to the Charleston area was about a year and a half ago with my family. And um, as far as my medical background, I uh, have a bachelor's in psychology and then a bachelor's and a master's in nursing. I'm a family nurse practitioner. And as a RN, I worked mostly in the ER. And then as a nurse practitioner, I've kind of done a variety of things. So I started in community health and then I did a lot of um, family medicine, primary care, but also urgent care and women's health. And also have done some stints making house calls. And when we moved here, I was in the process over the over the past few years, I guess, over the last five years of kind of making more of a transition into more nutrition and holistic and wellness-based um, learning and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with that. And so when I found Optimal Bio, it seemed like a very good fit for everything I'd been learning and believing and wanting to do. So when you were, you know, growing up, high school, college timeframe, did you know you wanted to get into the medical world? Definitely not. Um, I can't say I really thought about what I, I don't know. I think back about what I would have done if I hadn't done this. And I'm really not sure. I was super into photography, super into traveling, probably some sort of like photojournalist thing is probably what I would have done. Um, but medicine, no, uh, my mom passed away when I was in high school. And I think that was kind of a, um, I don't know, a turning point in terms of being interested in, you know, life and health and all of those things. And so uh, in college, I, I ended up taking an EMT course and that just sort of started the ball rolling and um, was pre-med during my first bachelor's degree and wasn't sure if I wanted to go to medical school, be a PA, be an NP. Um, but I think all along kind of that more like holistic care uh, is why the nurse practitioner was a better fit for me even back then. And I also knew I wanted a family and wanted some flexibility. And so it was, it was a good call. Yeah. It's kind of funny how, you know, life takes you in certain directions. And, you know, I was in the headhunting business and my father passed and died of cancer, you know, after being diagnosed, um, you know, two months earlier. And that eventually steered our business into, you know, becoming a contract research organization where we do clinical trial work for pharmaceutical. And of course we focused on oncology. Um, so when you have that extra purpose, um, I think that helps, you know, anybody, you know, in general with the, just simply having a purpose in life, but also from a business perspective, you know, trying to, you know, do high quality work and hopefully, you know, through our research, getting some drugs approved, we eventually save some lives of people that otherwise, you know, might not have made it. Right. It's a great mix for me too. just, I love being a nurse practitioner because I can reinvent myself a million times, which I have already and will continue to do. There's really no 
and to, you know, if I can find someone to teach it to me and then show that I can do it, there's really no limit to anything that I'm allowed to do. And I love that. So um, for me, having flexibility and being able to kind of reinvent myself over and over again has, is great. And in that way, this is the best career choice for me. Where'd you go to college? Um, I got a bachelor's degree from University of Denver. Uh, and then I went to Samuel Merritt University for a bachelor's and master's. And that's in the Bay Area. Denver, Denver has a pretty good, what, hockey and lacrosse team? Yes. Yeah. Very fun. We a lot of hockey games. <laughs> so you did have some fun in college. You weren't just doing EMT the whole time. Absolutely. No, I did work. Um, I worked at the hospital doing, I was a phlebotomist for a while. I was a ER patient care tech. And then at one point I was a patient transporter. So I would work in the middle of the night, either drawing blood or taking patients from their, their room or the ER to their MRI. Um, and then I'd roll into chemistry class at 7.30 AM and it was a little brutal, but got through it. <laughs> so when you're going through that time frame and you're doing, you know, it sounds like you have multiple, um, you know, jobs, you know, during that time, what was mm -hmm. the most interesting and most fun for you? I mean, ER is always the most fun. It just is. Um, and I've really only worked in like a true trauma center once. And that I would say is not as fun. It's really fascinating, but obviously more stressful. Being in a, a, an emergency department though, is like, it's a, it draws a different crowd. It's a different, um, you know, they call ER docs, the backpacker specials. Sometimes I think it's a lot of people who are really active and adventurous and fun. And so it's just inherently always been a great group to work with. Um, and it's also just so different from primary care where, you know, you're in the moment able to help somebody with what they're going through, but it isn't all of the like follow through and all of the management over time. And so it was kind of a good balance to not have kind of chronic management and to get to do some more acute care things. I really liked that. Very task oriented, which I love, and also procedure oriented, which I loved. Is the real life ER similar to the TV ER? No, not at all. <laughs> no. Yeah. I think we all try to avoid the ER, but sometimes when we go, it's to me, it's, it's a lot of waiting around. And, you know, yeah. I know they take the trauma patients through the back door, so to speak, but um, sure. It's, uh seems to me today, it's kind of a chaotic, you know, scenario there. You seem to, you don't really have, it seems like you have a lot of uh, what I would call, um, you know, 1099 docs. They're not really associated with the hospital. Yep. Right. Um, and it's, you know, there's no beds sometimes, not because they're busy. It's just simply there's just not enough staff to staff the bed. So it just takes. It's an administrative nightmare for sure. Trying to put everybody places is no fun. And when you were, you know, doing that back then, I mean, was it different, you know, than what you think what it is now? Or has it always been the same? I mean, it's been a long time, but it seems to me that now, especially like as far as the weight that you were talking about to be seen and things like that, you know, now like you can get online and look up how long is the wait to, to be seen. And, and, and I think maybe technology has helped a little bit, but it's been a long time since I worked in the ER. So I'm not sure I can, but it almost seems like there's a lot more urgent, urgent cares now too. So they're you yes, know, trying to that push has to help big time. Yeah. What about when you were riding in the ambulance? I mean, any, any cool stories, you know, when you got called? Yeah. So at the time I was in uh, Durango, Colorado, and um, it sits between two um, major reservations. And so that makes for some interesting healthcare um, and just, you know, learning a lot of cultural sensitivity things too. Um, and a lot of rural um, calls, but also it's an area where weather can be really volatile. So I do remember a couple of nights with, you know, there was a 50 car pile up on an icy road on a pass and it was really scary, but, um, it's, it's pretty, I have the utmost respect for the EMS, um, 
the whole system because they really put themselves in danger. And it was, it was adventurous for sure. <laughs> you graduate college and then you, um, when you have the psych degree at this point in time, right? Um, so then mm-hmm. what do you have to do after that to, you know, become what you are today? So I was a pre-med bio major most of the time. Um, and I switched to psychology sort of last minute because I had all most of the prereqs um, for med school or NP school at that point anyway. And then I noticed that the classes I was really enjoying were more like sociology and psychology. And I didn't want to take kind of any more <laughs> physics and biochem than I had to. So I just sort of, I made a switch in my major to be able to take kind of those upper level other classes that were more fascinating to me. And I think that's really served me well. I don't know anyone who's gotten a degree in psychology who doesn't feel that it's sort of, no matter what you do, a good thing just to have kind of a deeper understanding of, of people and how we work. Um, so I'm glad I made that call, but I did, um, need to go do, I think, one or two prerequisites at the University of Colorado after that that were specific to the programs I applied to. And um, so I pretty much, I think I only spent less than less than a year um, after college before I moved to California to go to, um, to go to school for nursing. And I did a dual program where it was an RN to NP. So um, it was all in one. It took, I don't know, about four years. Um, and then I worked as an RN while I was finishing my NP. As soon as I was done with that, I got married um, during that time and we moved home uh, to Colorado right after I graduated. So um, most of all of, pretty much all of my work was in Colorado before we moved here. And did the school choice cause the move to the West Coast or was it for other reasons? No, I just, I love Northern and Southern California. I knew I wanted to go somewhere for a while, assuming that, you know, once we got married and have kids, we would move back home to Colorado. And it just seemed like the right time to spend some time living somewhere else. Um, and the school itself was just perfect for me. It's, um, it's small, it's really, you know, it was a fast track intensive program, but really had a great history and well done. They're good at picking out clinical sites, which is such a huge battle for a lot of schools. And, um, just seemed like a really great place to be, to learn in terms of diversity too. just being in the Bay area, um, was awesome for that also. So it was more just time to spend some, a good couple of years living somewhere else. And when were you there? What was it like early two thousands or? Yeah. Um, 2004 to 2008. Okay. All right. Yeah. I can't say that I missed the weather. That is the one thing <laughs> that was kind of rough, but other than that, it was great. Yeah. We had an office in South San Francisco during that time. So I'd get out there on a regular basis and, um, we were kind of on the cusp of, um, we just went maybe five or 10 minutes South. It was a lot warmer, you know, than uh, yeah. on the East Bay side, the Oakland side is much better yeah. weather. So that's actually where I lived. Yeah. And that was, that was a good call. But just beautiful out there. And Hopefully, um, hopefully they can, you know, continue to maintain that, that standard of living, that lifestyle out there. Um, yeah. All right. So you're during this time too, I think I know you a little bit. Um, you had mentioned that you did some, take some classes in nutrition or cooking or what have you. So can you walk us through that? So after, um, I guess it would have been after about, 12 years or so of working in kind of a more traditional variety of environments, whether it was in primary care, women's health. Um, I just, the more I learned about what I wanted for my family and my health and my kids as they were babies, what I, you know, 
looking into like what products are good and what should they be eating and all of those things, I started realizing, gosh, you know what? I really don't know. I don't know well enough what I want for my own family. And that in turn means I don't know well enough to guide my patients in a way that I feel good about also. So the more I started to question things, the more at first I thought I was just going to go learn a little bit more and integrate it into what I was currently doing. But the more I learned, the more I realized I really wasn't in alignment in general with what I was doing. And so I actually, um, quit my job as a nurse practitioner. And I sort of did this year of self-discovery where I took a, um, a really great course from the Functional Nutrition Alliance in, um, it's called the Full Body Systems. And it was a completely new way for me to learn like anatomy, physiology, pharmacology from a more holistic approach surrounding the basis of food mostly and how those um, systems can be supported by nutrition and by herbs. And um, it was just a really awesome class. And then I went to the Nutrition Therapy Institute in Denver, took a class, um, a certificate program called the Natural Food Chef. So three days a week, um, there were, I think, 10 of us in a uh, commercial kitchen um, where we did the morning was kind of classroom time where we were learning about, again, like what nutrients um, and what foods best support the body system. And then also about like recipe combining, food combining, what what cooking methods, you know, do we really need to think about to not, there's so many things that, you know, you can buy all of this beautiful, awesome organic food and then break all the nutrients apart in the way that you cook them. And so it was really kind of about, about that, what things to use in the kitchen and what cooking methods help preserve nutrients. And so it was a really awesome time. Um, I learned a lot and I learned a lot about myself and changed a lot of things for our family. And it was great. Now, during that time, uh, were your kids still on baby food or were they older at that point in time? Yeah, no, uh, currently they are 10, 12 and 15. Um, so I think my oldest was about 10. Um, so about 10, seven and five, I okay. guess. All right. So you were making your own baby food then? Nope. Nope. Um, I dabbled with that a little bit with, with them when they were younger, but again, it was like, I didn't know what I was doing. So, um, it's more just, you know, trying to pack lunches for kids and not have it be full of preservatives and make it something they will actually eat is really tough. And I was really struggling to, to do that. And also I had one that was pretty like sensory, um, sensitive with food. And so textures were a big deal. And one was really picky. And I really had this goal of everyone's going to, I'm only making one meal. I, like I'm not making three different meals. I can't do this. <laughs> so um, that was kind of my goal. And we definitely got there and their, uh, their variety of what they eat and all of those things um, exploded. And, you know, sometimes it's still hard, but for the most part, they, they're easy now. So if you, so what's a typical lunch meal for your kids, you know, in that brown bag or that lunch box that's going to school? Usually a lot of leftovers. So like we'll put, you know, say they had Caesar salad the night before, I'll, I'll put that in. And then um, usually some leftover chicken and then some fruit, some nuts or seeds. Um, and then they get to pick their snack. Like they'll pick whatever bag of popcorn or something. Um, but I try to have a veggie and a fruit and a protein. And then sometimes they'll throw in some side treat or whatever. But at least I know the majority of what they're eating is something I've chosen. And and the bigger thing is no one in my family tolerates dairy very well. So that's a really hard thing about school lunches too. And that's the other reason that I just had to find a way to be able to pack it ourselves. So one of the tricks I think I'm picking up on is, you know, you make enough for 
meals, dinners, you know, and then the leftovers are for lunch. So you're not recreating the wheel every single day with uh, a different, you know, lunch recipe, so right. to speak. Which works great with my kids and my husband, but I am notorious for not liking leftovers. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, you know, I make them all their lunches and then I'm like, I think I'll go out to lunch now. <laughs> so that's another thing too. When you go out to lunch, what, you know, what, what should, you know, our listeners look for, you know, when they're going out to lunch, like what's, what are the, I guess the hidden time bombs or the hidden bombs of what might be considered nutritious, but isn't really, you know, what do you recommend? I mean, we love finding restaurants that pride themselves in buying locally. So um, maybe more kind of like the farm fresh menus where they have a new menu, depending on what's in season. I think that speaks to the chef or whoever really kind of knowing what they're doing and looking for what's in season and what's, what's healthier. Um, But we also just kind of have a family policy that we're really trying to get better at all the time, which is to find out ahead or keep track of like which restaurants send you home with a to-go box that's styrofoam or bring you a styrofoam cup, things like that, that we're really trying to avoid also, not only just health, but environmentally. So um, I think those are the big things. We um, don't go out to eat that much here. I know people are going to be like, when I say this, because it's Charleston, but I'm not, I'm struggling to find our restaurants here anyway. So um, we eat at home a lot. Yeah, there are some great restaurants in Charleston. <laughs> yeah, I got to get out a little more, but so far we we have a few, but we just, we try to, you know, I always look up the menu ahead of time for sure. Let's kind of go through this whole cooking thing and, you know, is raw better yeah. than cooking? That depends on what you're eating and what you're choosing it for. So there are some people who maybe have like, you know, gut things that were, you know, tolerate a raw diet better. The opposite is also true. There are a lot of people who are too sensitive to a, like a whole raw diet. Um, and I think that it really depends on also like, are you vegan or vegetarian? That that plays a big role in how much raw you would probably eat. It's not that cooking is bad for foods. It's the best example is, you know, people will say steam broccoli and they don't realize that all of the nutrients go into the water. And so roasting it and uh, is a much better way to eat broccoli because you don't lose all of those nutrients and in, in, in the steaming process. It's things like that. Um, but the other thing that I'm pretty passionate about as far as food is kind of what I call the homemade pantry, where I, I also, when I was working and had kids full time, thought that you know, making your own things at home was time consuming and maybe not possible for me. But what I learned was that if I replaced just a few of like our pantry staples that were maybe the most processed and found an easier way to do that, that I felt I felt so much better about that. So the little things like nut milk um, and nut butters, for example, or making like our own sauces or salad, things that are like notorious for having a lot of preservatives in them. We kind of have a repertoire of things that we make ourselves at home now and um, it's fun to do. I really enjoy it, but it also makes me feel a lot better about what we're, what we're eating. And it's cheaper. So I never heard that before about the steam broccoli. So explain how that, why the steam would blow out the nutrients and. Yeah. Have you ever noticed how, even if it's in a steam basket, like when you throw the water into the sink, it's green, Mm -hmm. all that chlorophyll and all those. Yeah. So those are all the nutrients and steaming. It's just too high of a temperature and it, makes it, you know, the moisture pulls it down into the water. And so most of the main nutrients from broccoli get lost in that process. I mean, you can like lightly steam it, but for the most part, that's true of all vegetables as cooked vegetables are much better, not steamed. Um, And so the other things are like what you're cooking with, you know, one of the big things we learned in my other program was like, what is safe cookware? And what about nonstick cookware and all of this stuff? There's so many chemicals and 
um, so much kind of that greenwashing in, in marketing of products where they'll say like, oh, it's non-toxic coating, but it's an aluminum core or something like that. So we dug into a lot of those things to try and look at, you know, what are what are like healthier things to have in our kitchen to also not be like leaching toxins into our food and little stuff switching over from plastic containers to glass, for example. Um, those are just some of the little things that we implemented. So when you see those um, advertisements for these like no stick pans and you're they're basically um, they can make anything in them and they're, you know, they can wipe it away with a paper towel and that's it. Right. <laughs> right. That's probably so are you saying that that's potentially could be a lot of toxins going into that individual who's eating yes. food from that pan? Yes. And I'll, it, this goes back to my childhood, too. It's one of those things where we had um, cockatiels growing up. And I remember when we got them, the person we got them from was like, do not ever cook with nonstick pans or the birds will die from like a toxic fume that to that those pans release. And we're like, what? And that was Teflon. Um, and so there's they they now have made a lot of products that they, you know, consider to be safer or Teflon alternatives. But like I said, they usually wrap them around something to for price that's cheaper. So it's one of those things. I have a love hate with cast iron. Also, it's great for your health, but it's also impossible to take care of. I feel like not being able to, you know, you have to season it and all of that. I, I don't have the best of luck with it, but I do have some of that. And then stainless steel and things like that, where, yeah, it's not nonstick, but you learn how to cook better with whether it's, you know, some avocado oil or whatever it is you choose. Um, it is a little trickier, but when you dig into just how bad all of that stuff is for you, or you realize that you're trying really hard to improve your health or spending a ton of money on like these high quality foods, and then you sort of ruin it by what you put it, what, what pan you put them in. Is it true too that, um, I read somewhere once where if you're cooking in an iron skillet, for example, you know, you're naturally, the body's going to get more iron. That's true. Um, I don't know that we, and it depends on the quality of the cast iron and how often you're using it. I mean, I don't think, I think that's great for people who maybe already suffer from, you know, iron stores and, and absorption of iron from say nutrients and from, from their food or people who are on like an elemental iron because they have maybe gut absorption issues, like any place where you can get more of it certainly couldn't hurt. But uh, to my knowledge, I don't think it's like, profound enough that you can, you know, say not need to take iron if you right. need it because you're cooking in cast iron, but it's a nice adjunct. Right. Sure. <laughs> and suddenly you see somebody scraping the yeah. iron off the cask and ingesting it. Um, right. Yeah. And rule of thumb with an iron skillet too, is not to use soap and water to clean it. Correct. Absolutely. Right. Like you're just supposed to wipe, you can use water, wipe it, or they have like those little kind of rubber spatulas that you can kind of scrape stuff off of it. But then yeah, you just re clean it off and then put some more oil or whatever you use. Okay. So back to, Let so back to vegetables. If you're going to mm -hmm. use water to cook the vegetables, if, is the rule of thumb, if the water's clear afterwards and you cooked it properly and you have enough nutrients still left in your vegetables, is that a fair assumption or no? Yeah. I mean, I do, like I said, I have one kid who's pretty sensory. So one of them doesn't like roasted broccoli and we, we do um, steam it for that one, but we just do it barely. Um, instead. So um, the other thing I've been thinking about looking into a little bit more is sort of steaming, but in the instant pot or the pressure cooker, um, just notoriously being able to make other things, you know, tender and softer, faster without that other process. But I have to look into that still. So I'll let you so know. So you had a slide the other day that, um, you know, basically had one 
then I'm going to butcher the title of it, but you had one side that's, you know, list of vegetables and fruits that are safe, I guess. Mm-hmm. The phytoestrogens. Yeah. And then you had the other side that was like, hey, stay away. And one of them was kale. And every, you know, probably four times a week, I'd be, I get this organic kale. I throw it into a mm-hmm. blender with some other stuff and wolf down basically a kale shake. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe I need yeah. to change, change that um, based on what you no. said. So kind of walk us through that whole scenario as well. I'm struggling to think of what in the estrogen presentation. Yes. I don't think I had like kale I as a bad I think it was a pesticide thing, thing maybe. And you had strawberries oh, and kale and you oh. had. Um, Things that are higher. Yes. I know what you're talking about. You're talking about the clean yes. 15 and the dirty yes, dozen. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's something that um, I frequently, like I keep a little wallet card of it actually, um, just so I can remember. So I, I try to always be sensitive, like to our budget, but also to my clients and, and patients about, you know, what things if, if we could all buy all organic all the time, that'd be great, but it's just not realistic for very many families. So there's a list that is the clean 15 are the things that are like these in general have less, pe- they are either grown or sprayed with less pesticides or have a covering over them, like a peel or something that protects the actual food more from that kind of toxin. Um, so that if you need to choose to not buy organic on something, that those would be the ones you would choose to to buy regular. And then the dirty dozen are the ones that you really, you know, should try and buy organic um, to, because they just have so much exposure to pesticide in the way that they're grown or the soil that they're in or all of the above. So yeah, it's not that the food itself is bad. It It's more a choice of which ones are more important to buy organic versus generic. Okay. Um, I think what so have at your kale. <laughs> as long as it's organic. Um, yeah, I think grapes were on that, that dirty dozen and um, strawberries yep. and, and some other things as well. Yeah. And those are porous things, right? They don't have, you know, whereas like avocados have a, a an exterior that is not as porous. So it makes sense. Back to vegetables again. Um, top three <laughs> in terms of nutrition. Depends on the nutrition goal. So, for example, uh, back to the iron stores and anemia, I think, you know, those dark leafy greens are are huge for that. So and at Optimal Bio, that's something we deal with a lot is um, some low or high iron stores or anemia. And um, so putting, you know, I have a kid with it, too. We put spinach or kale or both in in his smoothies. Um, and I think it's just, yeah, the dark leafy things, the more chlorophyll, the more colorful things are, the more nutrients are in them. That's just the way it works. But I also, you know, I talked to them about it a lot in terms of eating the rainbow, which we've all heard, but, you know, trying to get as much diversity in is really, they, they actually, the nutrients work, not just like, oh, this one's high in iron or this one's high in vitamin C, they interact with each other. So food combining is something that I'm learning more about. I don't know a lot about it yet, but I'm very fascinated to learn where when you combine different foods, you actually absorb the nutrients from each of them better, depending on what you eat them with. Um, So that's another thing that I think is really interesting that I'm kind of trying to look into, but what you eat together matters. Getting back to vegetables again, the broccoli stalks, the kale stalks. um, I I always thought that was the most nutritious part of the plant. But then I was on a listening mm-hmm. to a Joe Rogan podcast and he had a, you know, a nutrition person on and, you know, he was talking about all plant, plants have been developed basically to be poisonous. Otherwise, if everything just animals, people eat them all the time, they're, they can't reproduce. Right. So, um, right. so the, 
you know, there were toxins in the leaves, per example. And then he goes, if you really get down in the stock, then that's going to, that's really where the toxins are. So, you know, I'm listening to him. I'm thinking, man, I just got to eat the leaves. I can't, you know, eat that stock. So mm-hmm. what do you say to that? I mean, I, so, so take broccoli, for example, there are different nutrients in the stock than there are up in the, the floret part of it. And so it would be a bummer to not eat both. Um, and uh, the same is true of asparagus. And so when you have a big change in texture like that, there's a reason there's different nutrients in it. And again, it goes back to like where your food is sourced. So um, if it's grown in super dirty soil or sprayed with a lot of stuff, just like our bodies, every plant has its own filtration system. It's going to push its toxins somewhere. And yeah, usually the most like peripheral part is where that will go. But it really depends on the plant, on the vegetable for sure. And again, like there's good nutrients in both pieces. So it's one of those weighing the risk benefit thing. I certainly wouldn't like avoid eating all the stocks of everything. Just buy it from a better place. <laughs> you kind of gave a political answer there. Um, so, so <laughs> if you're buying kale, are you, take, not to. are you eating that stock or not? So I don't like the way that it tastes. The way we do kale is usually like we, um, we take most of the stock off, not like the pieces, right. you know, in the right. leaves, but like the harder right. tip there. And then we put it in a bowl with like a little bit of avocado oil and kind of, if you massage it, it breaks up the fibers of the kale. Um, and then we put a little bit of sea salt and a little bit of lemon, and then we just kind of lightly saute it. And that's the way we usually eat it. The only other way we usually eat it is in a salad for the adults. My kids won't eat kale salads unless it's cooked, um, but I can throw it in their right. smoothies. Right. It seemed like kale came out of nowhere too in the last five years. You know, everybody kind of knew about it I in the know. past. All yeah. these trends. Yeah. And I think before mm-hmm. that, Brussels sprouts. So is that a, is that a marketing push or is that um, just people getting smarter about what's good and what's bad? I think it's influencers. It's like, who's eating what? I opened my Instacart app the other day and it's like Lizzo, the singer, and it's the weirdest thing. She's in her bathtub and it's like, what's in Lizzo's grocery cart? I'm like, I, I'm, I don't care. <laughs> so that's a little odd. I think it's all about like what other people or famous people are doing becomes this trend and the influencer thing is true. I mean, you know, sometimes it's great. You get to learn about something new or hear about something you wouldn't have known about otherwise. But what I wanted to talk about next was food as a, a healing agent. So let's say, you know, the person has a kid or adult has just a common cold, um, you know, what would be some of the, mm-hmm. you know, meal recommendations you would, you know, you would do for your kids, let's say, um, if they had a cold, but they had a good appetite still. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm a big believer in kind of listening to your body. So sometimes I think within reason, what they're craving is exactly what they probably need. So I try to listen to that. Um, We definitely avoid all dairy when we're sick and and a lot of things that are inflammatory just because your whole system's already uh, inflamed. If they have a cough, we do a lot of um, a lot of honey, a lot of, you know, just the basics like warm water and honey or tea and honey stuff. Honey is a natural cough suppressant. So we do a lot of that. Um, I think... We try to just do, you know, give them as much kind of, I'm not a big believer that you need excesses and excesses of protein, but when your body's trying to heal or fight something and you need those energy stores, then um, we, we kind of push the protein and not have kind of those sides of whatever starches or kind of the more carbs, they just are kind of empty energy for them. So I would say protein, I would say, um, 
garlic and ginger. We usually soak um, chopped up garlic and ginger uh, in a jar of honey and we let it sit for a couple of weeks so that it really kind of does its magic. And then I can try. Some of them will take a spoonful of that, but my husband and I take that. I mean, you know, they're on their their vitamins. We try to do the smoothies a lot then too, because I can get a lot of more nutrients in. So we will do kind of more heavier um, water and uh, veggie-based smoothies instead of more of the fruit and dairy milk type. Um, But those are the basic things. I mean, I think most people crave warmth and um, simplicity, not like lots of spices and things when you're not feeling well. So we just kind of listen to them, but... Those are the big ones. All right. So tell me about this honey recipe. Like, what does it taste like at the end? How long do you so, have to let it sit? And kind of if you're doing mm-hmm. a cooking class right now, you yeah. know, walk us through the, the how you do yeah. that. It's so simple. We actually, it's funny. My husband and I went on a date night to this herbalist in Denver where it was like, you know, the beginning of when I was learning about kind of making some of your own things at home. And um, she was like, come learn how to make your own, you know cold and cough support. And so we're like, okay. So we did that. We're weird. Those are our date nights, but, um, hey, we whatever works. went to this herbalist office. Yeah. And basically we just cut up like fresh ginger and, um, and fresh garlic. And we left it in like fairly big chunks and mixed it in with honey and in a jar where she, how do you, you know, invert it like every day for a couple of weeks. And then we let it sit. I think it was six weeks or eight weeks. It was a while. Um, but it, it's amazing. It's so good. I mean, it's not that fun when you don't feel well to bite into a giant chunk of garlic, but the ginger I love biting into. And it, and I guess it's one of those things where it works, so you don't care. Um, it's soothing and immediately Does the honey dissolve the garlic and ginger or is it chunky when you're eating it? Nope, it's chunky. Does the honey overpower the taste of the garlic and the ginger? It helps. I wouldn't say overpower, but yeah, it's kind of that mix of sweet, savory, I guess. So where do you fall on the whole when in your nutrition and cooking um, in terms of proteins, you know, fish, chicken, beef, pork, Mm -hmm. all that stuff? um, You know, what, what, what do you recommend there? And, you know. So we only buy grass fed organic uh, beef products for sure. And all organic chicken. Um, we try to avoid pork. I wish we ate more fish, you know, coming from Colorado in a landlocked state, it was hard to find fresh. And I sort of thought moving here, we would have better access to it, which we do and we don't. So they also didn't grow up eating it. Neither did I. So we're learning. Um, I've only recently learned over the last few years to start liking some more seafood. Um, but like we'll make salmon, um, and, we love making paella. That's one way I can sneak some seafood in because uh, they love that. And um, for a while, when we were living in Colorado. As far as animal stuff, we uh, we had our own chickens for a little while, which was really, really fun. I wanted the kids to see kind of and remember that, you know, your food actually comes from an animal that someone takes care of or doesn't take care of and how important that process is. And so we had chickens for a couple of years and that was fun to kind of see like, depending on what we fed them, the color of their yolk changed and the taste of the eggs changed and things like that. So here we aren't allowed to have chickens, but we try to, um, there's a couple of farms around here where we'll um, either go or get a delivery from them for like bone broth and eggs and meat and, and stuff like that. I'm looking for a good um, produce CSA around here too. But as far as meat, my husband loves bison. So he has that once a week probably. And then we have beef once or twice a week and then chicken and 
most of the time. Um, we don't eat deli meats usually. We try not to eat like processed deli meats, which is complicated when you're packing lunches, but that's okay. Um, we did this thing called Buddha bowls where, you know, every few weeks we'll kind of do a Sunday where we make three different proteins, um, three different vegetables, three different sauces, and then three different sides. So maybe it's quinoa, lentils, beans, something like that. And then we'll make like grilled chicken, some ground beef and whatever, some salmon. And then we'll have like a pesto, a salsa and a like dairy-free tzatziki or something like that, or kind of like an Asian sauce. And um, we just make it all at once and then you can mix and match things. So sometimes it'll be like, you know, bison and sweet potato and green beans. And then the next day you can mix it up and make it a taco or whatever. So we try to make those things ahead of time and then put them in and just remix it. And then everybody can have what they want without me having to make multiple things. That's a pretty good idea. Pork, is that because nutrition, cleanliness, or is that religious or what's... Um, it's mostly about the treatment of the, I mean, it's not great for us anyway, but pigs are so, so, so smart and, um, not that only smart animals deserve better treatment, but it's just hard once you know what you know about, about them. Um, so the problem with that is everybody loves bacon, right? So we'll have that on occasion as a treat, but just in general, I think it's the salt, it's what they eat is not great. Um, and, and also just the cruelty mm-hmm. aspect of it. Okay. It's hard. Because there really aren't free-range pigs like there are free-range chickens and cows and all. There are. There are. There are. It's just harder. Yeah. Certainly not that you can really buy in the store that I know of. And um, we did try going as a family. We went vegetarian for a year. And I loved it because I had to think outside the box and start making new recipes and thinking up new things and trying new things, all of us. Um, for us, especially my husband works in the hospital, he doesn't really get very many breaks. So, you know, you eat vegetarian, you got to eat more frequently. And that just (laughs) was really hard on everybody in terms of like, we were hungry all the time and we probably didn't do it completely right, but it really gave us some great new recipes. And, and that was, it was fun. Um, I love my protein, uh, my animals. Um, so going vegetarian for a year would be, I couldn't do it. Um, I wouldn't even try. Yeah. I think it was a challenge after my class to just see, but yeah. (laughs) So obviously you have kids, you know, you're human, um, you travel, you know, you're going to get food on the go every Mm -hmm. once in a while. So if you have to Mm -hmm. treat yourself, I guess, in a weird kind of way, or if you have to go get something on the go, what, what do you recommend? Until we moved here, they had, <laughs> sounds crazy. I'm really not this like uptight about it. It just worked out for a while. They had never been through a drive through besides Starbucks until we moved here. So um, they have not had, maybe they've had McDonald's once in the airport when we were about to miss a flight and we grabbed pancakes or something, but they didn't eat like eggs or meat at, at McDonald's. Um, so I guess the treat would be like, they would love for me to stop and let them have like a breakfast sandwich from Starbucks, which that they'll do it. It's not any different really, you know, from any other drive through but for some reason it's just been easier to make things kind of strict boundaries on that kind of stuff. Um, you know, when I was growing up, my parents and my aunt and uncle, I remember like they would take us and our cousins to the mountains and on the way up, we had to go to three, sometimes four different stops because everybody wanted a different <laughs> fast food option. So I just knew like, there's no way right. I'm doing that. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, we'll stop at the gas station and see what we can find if we need to. And if, you know, there's Starbucks everywhere, which isn't great, but we, that's kind of the one that we. Do you have an experience with Chick-fil-A since you've been South? 
I have, and they have. Um, it's sort of unavoidable. You know, we go to a party and someone has like the party tray of the nuggets. And of course, it's like incredibly delicious, but we just, right. we don't go just us. If somebody else is offering it or gives it to them or whatever, I don't care, which I guess is part of why I'm pretty strict about stuff at home is so that I don't worry so much if they go to a birthday party or to a friend's house, like I'm not going to tell them they can't have whatever's being served. So it's just, yeah. So what about nutritional desserts? Obviously, you, fruit's better than cake and what have you. But if you're, there's no fruit yeah. option, you know, what do you recommend? When they were younger, they used to have fun making their own popsicles and stuff out of leftover smoothies. But that they don't seem to love that so much anymore. I mean, we do desserts on special occasions. It's not a part of our everyday, for sure. I didn't grow up eating it every day either. So it just doesn't really occur to me. But um, I would say we'll do like strawberries and whipped cream or we'll do my daughter loves to bake so she'll make cookies um i would say it's mostly mostly cookies or like i'll make like banana bread or pumpkin bread or something like that um but it's just not really much of a there's not much of a sweets especially after dinner or anything yeah family. just just not opposed to it we all love well, this time of year too you you know it's christmas and you get assaulted with uh you know lots of different desserts um right Right. Yeah, right. So. Yep. Peppermint bark <laughs> for sure. <laughs> it's almost as bad as candy corn in my world. I know, but I have more of that savory, like you, the Chex Mix will have me in big trouble, but the sweets, I don't really have like the sweet tooth. But <laughs> uh, What about nuts? Um, you know, you, you rank a cashew, a peanut or an almond, you know, uh, what do you go mm -hmm. for first from a nutritional standpoint? So we had everybody in our household do a um, food sensitivity thing because one of the things I, I realized was that you know, different nuts are really inflammatory to different people. Um, and so it was kind of a bummer because it turned out that everybody's like favorite nut was the one that they came back more sensitive to <laughs> sort of regret doing it, I guess. <laughs> um, so I think that's more important and it's not so much the nutrient of one nut over the other, but um, again, where they where they come from and also um, who's eating them. But like we, I don't know, I do, mostly we use nuts to make our nut milk. And by that, I'm not sitting here with like cheesecloth, squeezing it and making homemade milk. That way I bought this thing that's so awesome called the almond cow. It's basically like a blender for making nut milks. And so I do that with cashews. I do that with almonds. I do it with seeds. Um, and so mostly we do that. Like I'll put I love pine nuts in salad and we put cashews in a good like quinoa cabbage salad. My kids will take almonds to school sometimes. I don't, I mean, none of, they can be inflammatory to everybody. So they're great in terms of like, we were talking about the food combining thing. Like you should always eat a uh, fruit with a seed or a nut for better nutrition absorption and for more fiber and, and all of those things. But, um, I don't know that we have like specific ones we eat or avoid. It's called the almond cow. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. It literally takes like two minutes and you just put the nuts in a basket and you fill it with water and you hit a button. But I've been making um, coffee creamer with it too, which is awesome. And that requires using cashew because they get like heavier and creamier milk. Um, but then you can make all sorts of different flavored creamers, which has been fun. We just add like a little honey or syrup or nutmeg or pumpkin spice or whatever. We've been oh, having fun yeah, with that. Yeah, because uh, we were making our own almond milk for a while, but it was a process yeah. and uh, to look into that. Yeah. And the thing about almond milk, I guess that's a really good one in terms of 
you know, nutrition and shopping and all of those things is that with very few exceptions, when you grab a bottle of almond milk, like it has between like one and 10 almonds actually in there. And, and you're really not getting, getting what you're paying for. And it's so expensive. Um, there's a brand that I like called Malk, M-A-L-K, which is better, but it's expensive. So buying the almond cow and then just doing it ourselves has been a huge money saver, but it's also just yeah. more fun. Yeah. So obviously you're landing at your Optimobile now and you're placing mm-hmm. people with BHRT, um, the all natural bioidentical pellet. And so how did your, your, your testosterone journey go? How'd you eventually land here to do this? I knew that the two things I really wanted were something that were in alignment with everything that I've been learning and believing. And I knew I was not going to go back to like a traditional practice. I also, though, as I said before, really like procedures and using my like hands-on work. And so, um, this is perfect for that. Um, but I also was looking into it like we all were for ourselves, you know, now my youngest is 10 and I'm like, why am I this tired? Um, and this can't be normal. You know, it just, um, the brain fog is crazy. And I was looking for solutions for myself and for my husband. And so it just was a culmination of all, all the things, things we needed as a family and things that, you know, I was looking for professionally and a place where I could learn, but know that I was with like-minded people and it just, it was perfect. And obviously you feel better now? I do. I have had, I had two, two rounds of pellets. Um, and I'm still kind of trying to figure out what my like optimal dose is for sure. But, um, yes, I feel so much better. Yeah, it's, um, and I sleep, I sleep now, which is amazing. And you need your sleep with, with three kids, right? <laughs> Yeah. I really do. Yep. Yeah. I think what, yeah. uh, I was reluctant, you know, for a while, my wife was on it first and, um, you know, then I did it and, uh, I, I do think once you start it, you get into a rhythm, um, you know, with your labs and mm-hmm. not one size fits all, you know, some people may go every six months, some people may go every four months. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it's uh, at Optima Bio, it's, it's customized to you. And, um, uh, especially mm-hmm. with your talent and all the other providers' talents of, um, you know, actually making the placement, you know, it's a lot different now than it was, you know, three or four years ago. No, oh, I love it. It's a, it's a great combination of, of getting to, I love doing the actual little mini procedure, but I just love the environment of like, you know, we're like the presentation yesterday, we're always like kind of being challenged to learn and then to share what we've learned. And I thrive on any environment where I can always be learning things. So um, in that way, it's it's perfect. And what we're learning is just so important. You know, it, it takes, I think it takes a lot of bravery as a healthcare professional of any kind to be open-minded and to look into things that maybe you haven't heard of before or contradict even what you were told or learned. And um, you kind of have to let your guard down and decide that you want to see truth and the whole picture. And, and once you do, you, you can't unsee what you've seen. So it's pretty life-changing once you open your eyes to what's really going on with your body and what options there really are. And it's, that's the best gift, I think. I think too, it's probably hard for you sometimes as a, as a provider, because some people I think come in and, you know, they, they get placed and they think that's all they have to do, right? They don't have to go change their diet mm-hmm. or they don't have to have some weight issues. They don't have to go exercise. Do you find that to be challenging? And, you know, if so, you know, do you, you know, how do you go, how do you convince them or, or encourage them, I guess, to 
you know, do everything and not just do the placement. I always talk about it, like to set realistic expectations, especially like in our initial consultations. And, you know, I frequently use the the saying of like, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. And it's, it's one of those things where like, if you want to feel the, the way that your, your goals are, you know, this will help you from the top down approach. So like I kind of describe it as like an, an umbrella, you know, if you, if you can balance your body from the top down, then all along the way, there's so many less interventions that need, that need to happen, whether that's medicine or doctor's visits or whatever illnesses, things like that, you're less, less likely to have all of those things. But if you how, you know, if you're completely sedentary and your metabolism is super, super low, then so is like your circulatory system. And so you can put whatever you want in your body, but if it's not circulating the way that it should, you're not getting what you should out of it. And the same is, you know, if you are sabotaging the effects of having, you know, this, I kind of think it's like a clean slate. So if you take these all natural hormones and then you eat like crap, you're still going to feel like crap, regardless of whether the pellets are doing their job or not, because you're super inflamed. And um, so it's one of those things where if you really want to see the effects of them, then you've got to do your part too. And um, it's one big picture. So there is no, there's never an easy, like, there's never a one, one thing that fixes everything. And I do think, you know, you can really sabotage a lot of, a lot of your work by what you eat and you know, and unfortunately, I think in traditional medicine, you know, you worked in it for a number of years. Um, you know, the expectation that's been set from the provider and also from the patient is I need a solution. I need a one-stop solution. And, you know, if right. and that, that works for the most part when you're prescribing an antibiotic for an infection, but for everything else, you know, it, it's, it doesn't, right? So... Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, yeah. that's where, where we are at this point in time. So it must, like I said, people come to Optimal Bio and, you know, they're coming from traditional medicine. They're obviously not happy with what's happened there. So they're coming to us. So hopefully they're coming with a more open mind, you know, about things. But at the end of the day, if, mm-hmm. you know, for 50, 60 years, you've been, you know, programmed with an expectation of, you know, this drug is going to fix me. Um, you know, it, it's. Right. I think it's changing. People are really learning. Like. So many people will say now things that they never would have said in terms of, you know, we went from doctor knows best always. You never, you know, my my parents and grandparents certainly never would have like challenged their doctor on something or asked questions even. And now, you know, you're encouraged to be an advocate for yourself and do your own do your own homework and ask questions. And that that should tell you whether you have a provider who's a good fit for you or not. If they encourage that and want to hear what you have have learned or want to answer your questions, then awesome. But if there either isn't time for that or they kind of I don't want to have a discussion about it. They just want to tell you what to do. That's kind of a red flag for me. So I think, you know, it's a system issue. People, I didn't have the time in my previous jobs to sit down and get into all of this. That's why functional medicine is so important because the premise of it is really getting a history from people and understanding each part of their life and their history to really get to the bottom of what is at the core of their health. The system is not set up for that in a traditional system. It's not that anybody doesn't care. They do not have the time. And that's really hard. So it's nice to kind of be able to get a bigger picture at Optimal Bio of the whole person. And even though we're focused just on, you know, thyroid and, and pellets, we do get to get a really big picture of what's going on with our, our patients. Great stuff. Well, thank you. 
you know, for, for being here today. Thank you for Thank you. You know, sharing your story with us. I certainly learned a lot about uh, cooking today and uh, nutrition. So um, to me, it was fascinating. Um, as always, with all of our guests, we you know asked them to give us at least five takeaways uh, for the listeners. So I'm going to throw it back to you and sure. let's hear what you have to say. Okay. So the first one is travel. And when you travel, learn about food, because when we go places, we... Um, it's such a window for learning about culture and history, um, also about learning about other people and languages. But I have found that like wherever we go on vacation, if we bother to take a cooking class or ha talk to somebody about, you know, what traditional foods are and cooking methods are, we learn so much more, not only about nutrients and about health, but about values and culture. And so that is a, a huge one for me. And then the second one is simplicity. I just think, you know, our lives are busy, our schedules are busy. And most of the time people have the best intention. Of, you know, I want to make these changes in my life, but I don't have time, which I empathize with. But I, I am kind of like, there's only one answer to that. You got to simplify some things to make it work. If it's a priority, it's a priority. And so sometimes, you know, when you're trying to get your health back on track or your family's health back on track, you may need to cut some things out for a while and really simplify your schedule so that you have some space in your mind to think the best about what would work for you and what you really want and need. And if you never have the space in your in your life for that, those ideas don't come to you. Um the third I would say is don't be afraid to try some of those homemade pantry ideas and to try and get more preservatives out of your pantry. It, it doesn't have to be, you know, hours and hours of of work and you don't have to have all these fancy devices. There's, you know, quite a few things that people can do from home. They're really easy and it saves you money, too. And so that would be the third one. Um, the fourth one is, I think, particularly pertaining to women, just having, you know, had babies and trying to get back in shape and all of that stuff. I, you know, I, I happen to have had a lot of chronic back pain through my life. And I think that I wish I would have kept moving and kept moving at a much higher level and not kind of done these dips after or during pregnancies or after, you know, keeping a more consistent basis for movement, flexibility and exercise would have really served me well. Um, so that would be four, right? Um, Five would be looking at the things in your kitchen, I guess, and looking at what sort of products you have and doing a little research to just try, you know, when you replace something, you don't need to go out and replace your whole kitchen. But if it's time to buy new pans or it's time to buy new plates or whatever, like do a little research first and, and find out what would be healthier, not just the most fashionable thing that you can find. Great stuff. Well, thank you again for everything. And um, I look forward to thank continue you. working with you. And um Happy holidays. This has been a production of Optimal Bio. Optimal Bio is CEO Tyler Brannon, podcast host and partner Jim Baker, medical director Greg Brannon, production assistance by Core Media, Beth Grabencourt, administrator, Kevin Duthu, executive producer. The podcast can be found on our website, optimalbio.com, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Our theme song is Sunwave by Paradiso, provided by Epidemic Sound. Thank you.